You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Good morning. You can be seated. It's good to have you today. Glad that you're here. Before we uh, before we get started this morning, uh, full confession, I'm having a problem with my left eye. I've, I've had an issue all week, so if you see me closing my left eye or rubbing my left eye, it is really driving me crazy this morning, so I apologize for that, but it is what it is. A second thing is we want to honor all of our teachers, school teachers, pre-K teachers, administrators, substitutes, uh, whatever your role is, if you work in the cafeteria, if you work uh, with sports teams, you're a coach, whatever your role is, we want to honor you this morning. We want to pray for you this morning, and we want to give you a gift this morning. Absolutely. Go ahead, Sandy. Let's go ahead and clap for them now. If you will, stand. It's going to have you stand. All of our teachers, administrators, if you're serving in the school, please stand. Outstanding. You can be seated. But when you leave today, we have something special for you. Just swing by. You'll see Miss Kim out there or some of our hosts out there. They'll be glad to give you a gift. Uh, but we just want you to know how much we appreciate you, how much we love you. I pray for you often, and we want to pray for you this morning. Um, the role that you serve in our community is vital. And I know there are days that um, you may not feel very appreciated. Um, so we want to appreciate you this morning. And we going to pray for you as we start off this new school year. So let's bow our heads together. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning thanking you for your goodness and grace. And Father, as I look back across my life, you have brought many, many teachers into my life. And they have made all the difference in the world. Father, I thank you for their kindness, for their patience, for their diligence. Father, I believe that their calling is just really a calling just like my own. Although the the realm in which they serve is different. The calling is still the same. They've been set apart for this service, and I thank you for it. Father, I know that because of the profession they're in, that not all, they're not always compensated the way that they need to be. And I know, Father, that, that the struggle week to week, month to month, can be very difficult for these folks who've dedicated their life to pouring into the lives of children and teenagers and so, Father, I pray that you would meet their needs according to your riches and glory. I pray that you would give them comfort and peace, give them clarity, give them confidence. And, Father, I know as they enter the classroom, many of them already have. As they're starting a brand new year, Father, the kids that are in their classroom, Father, I know that that desire is there to just pour their lives into those kids, even beyond just teaching them the information. But, Lord, even meeting needs for children in their classroom that maybe are less fortunate. They're going into their own bank account and purchasing things for those kids because they're in need. Father, that's the kind of people we have serving in this county, and I'm so thankful for them. Father, I just pray that you protect them, keep them safe, keep their schools safe this year. And Father, I just pray that you'd use them mightily. Father, I know that many of them live out their faith in their classrooms as best they can. So I pray, Father, that their light would shine brightly. Thank you for everyone that serves in our community in this role and all the many roles within the administration and all those others. I pray that you bless them abundantly. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. I've got an easy book for you to find this morning. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. So we spent uh, 32 weeks in the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible. 
Today we're going to start back at the very beginning because I think it's vitally important that we look at what's laid out in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. I think it's going to bring some context to what we see going on in our world today. I think it's going to help us to understand that that the further we wander away from God's standards, from God's principles, from the way he formed it in the very beginning, the further we wander away from that, the more we find ourselves in chaos, both individually and I also believe as a country as well. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Father, we pause again to just ask you for your guidance and wisdom today. So, Father, throughout this congregation, there are people who are hurting. There are people who are struggling. As Stacy has testified already this morning, that you are good no matter the circumstances. What an incredible sermon we've already heard this morning. But, Father, I know that where the folks sit in this room and those that are watching online, that, Father, what they have to face tomorrow, what they've already had to face this weekend, is overwhelming. And so, Father, we pray that as we return to the beginning of the canon of Scripture, that, Father, we would see you in all of your greatness and all of your power and all of your majesty, and at the same time, see that we have not been forgotten, not, not a single one of us have been forgotten by you. Father, guide us in your word this morning, we ask in Christ's name, amen. If you were to take a tour group to Washington, D.C., more than likely you would make your way to the National Mall. Now, the National Mall is this strip of land that has on all sides of it government buildings, museums, all of it pointing to the founding of this country, even going beyond that, to, to why this country operates the way that it does, the way the government is set up, our Constitution, all of those structures in the National Mall have as their purpose to help us remember the founding of this country and why this country is so unique in all of history. So let's imagine that you take a tour group there that has no working knowledge of our history, no working knowledge of how this country operates. In other words, you have a tour group that is basically a blank slate, and you're going to take them around the, the National Mall. On one end of the National Mall, the east end is the U.S. Capitol. And let's imagine that you, you go into the, the Capitol building, and you go into that, that big room that you see on TV, right, when both houses of our government join in in this one room and, and the president stands to make an address. You've got the Supreme Court. You've got all these other people sitting in that room. It's a huge room. And, and you look at the stage, and, and here's the president standing on the stage, and you look over his head, and back on the wall, you see these words. Front and center in the chamber, it says this, In God we trust. Let's imagine then that you take this group and you, you head down to the, the west end of the, of the National Mall. On the west end, two miles from the U.S. Capitol, is the Washington Monument. And as you're looking at the Washington Monument, they have a, a uh, I think it's at the Washington Monument, it may be in one of the museums, but they have a, a mock-up of what's sitting on top of the National Monument, it is, or the Washington Monument. It is, a, it is an aluminum pyramid, basically. And on the east side of that aluminum obelisk that's on top of the Washington Monument, you have these words inscribed on the east side, Laos Deo. That is Latin for in 
God be praised. So in that, on that washing monument, at the very top of it, on the east side, those words are inscribed in Latin, God be praised. Let's imagine that we leave the Washington Monument and now we go over to the Jefferson Memorial. You walk into the Jefferson Memorial and inscribed on the wall of the Jefferson Memorial are these words, quote, God who gave us, who, God who gave us life gave us liberty. Can the liberties of a nation be secure? When we have removed conviction that these liberties are the gift of God. Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. We leave the Jefferson Memorial and let's go over to the Library of Congress. It is touted to be the largest library in the world. In the center of that library is a, is a large dome. And leading out of that dome are different pathways, different hallways. And, and the, do, the doors in that center obelisk or in the center part of the, of the library, over each door they have these inscriptions over the door. One of them says this, quote, Nature is the art of God. Acknowledging the creator, God, who, who created with such beauty and majesty that nature is the very art of God. Over another door, you'll see this, quote, the first creature of God was the light of sense. The last was the light of reason. Over another door, you'll see this, ignorance is the curse of God, knowledge the wing wherewith we fly to heaven. And then finally, you'll see this one, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, that government of the people, by the people, for the people shall not perish from the earth. So by this point, your tour group is beginning to probably ask some questions about God who has written on several of the key monuments, museums, and buildings all over Washington, D.C. At this point, they may be asking the question, who is this God? The only answer that you can provide, it is not just some concept of God. It is not just whatever God you want it to mean. It is the God of the Judean Christian faith, the one we're going to learn about in Genesis chapter 1. It is the God of the Bible that is being referenced. Bible verses on buildings. Everywhere you look in the National Mall and all over D.C., you have the words of God invoked, either words from the Bible or God himself. Well, this poses a problem, does it not? Because the tour group would have to imagine that at this point, wow, if, if that God is loved and, and honored and worshiped to that degree, then certainly the people in the streets of D.C. honor him with their life and the choices that they make. That would be the most obvious conclusion, right? Because on the very money you have in your wallet right now, it says what? In God we trust? Do we really as a nation? The, the God that is written on all of those marble stones throughout D.C., do we really follow and trust and honor and worship and even fear that God? When you look at our nation as a whole and how we're living, the choices we're making, the way our leaders are leading, their lifestyles, the things they're saying, the things they're doing, the laws they're putting in place, can we say collectively that they fear that God and that they trust him? I believe the answer is conclusively no. That what is written on the walls in D.C. is not being lived out in the lives of its inhabitants. Why is that? We have to go back to Genesis for the answers. How in the world can a country that is absolutely founded on the God of the Bible, even specifically Christian understanding and idea of the world, how can a country that was founded upon that, and for some period of time in our history, 
tried to live that out in our leadership all the way down to your street. How is it we've gotten to the place we are now? Now, this is not going to be a sermon series where we just talk about patriotism and all that. Although that's important, that's not what we're going to focus on. Genesis is called the seedbed of the Bible. Why is that? It's because our core doctrines of the faith have their beginnings in, well, the book of beginnings. What we understand about who we are, what we understand about our purpose in life, what we understand about the cosmos, the universe, what we understand about the purpose in which it was created, all of those big life questions that you are wrestling with right now, we can find answers in the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. Questions like, who am I? If you are if you're under the age of 30, this may be a question you're really, really wrestling with. You could be in your 50s and wrestling with this question. But I would say that in my conversations with people in their 20s, they're wrestling with this. Because there's another question that flows out of that. Not only who am I, but what is my purpose? My goodness. Listen, folks, the suicide rate right now is off the charts. We're not, we've not seen anything like this in our history. Young people deciding that the best option for them is to take their own life. And it's because... They have forgotten, or they never knew it to start with, what their purpose is, who they are as a person, how valuable they are in the eyes of God, and how that translates into a purpose-filled life. And when you lose those things, when you lose who you are, and you lose your purpose, I tell you, it's easy to get in a very dark place. For those of you who've been there, you know what I'm talking about. Genesis is going to help us to wrestle with these big life questions about who am I? What is my purpose? Why is it all here? Moses wrote this book, although he doesn't really take credit for it. You would imagine that at the very beginning of the book, Moses would say, I'm, I'm writing an account from, from, the, from the beginning of time down through the patriarchs. I'm going to give this account, this historical account, and, and, I, and I'm writing it for you. He doesn't even, doesn't even start there. Instead, he just starts with God. Oftentimes, when we read the book of Genesis, we, we jump right over these first two verses and we, we jump into the six days of creation. We're going to get there, but not until we deal with these first two verses. Because I think the entire canon of Scripture has its connections to this first two verses and the opening of the canon of Scripture. If you look at our, if you look at our culture as a whole, the corruption... The hatred, uh, the outright rebellion. Here's a conclusion that I've come to. Because of the abject narcissism that I see every day on, on our airwaves and our, in our social media feeds, it is absolutely a culture that is in love with itself. So much so that this same culture has not only denied the existence of God, but our culture has decided that it's God. Human beings have now decided that we are God and we get to define what is true and what is false. We get to define for our own purposes, for our own comforts, for our own abilities. We get to decide. We are not beholden to some creator. If he even exists at all, he doesn't matter. That's agnosticism. The idea that God doesn't exist at all, that's atheism. And Moses deals with all of that in the first two verses because without these first two verses, without being grounded that there is a God that he created and that he is very much aware of you, if we can't start there, nothing else is going to make sense no matter what you read in Scripture. 
Instead of trusting God, we ignore him. Instead of following him, we rebel against him. Rather than submit to him, we just become gods ourselves. These first 11 chapters, what we're going to look at over the next several weeks, is going to go right to the core of what we're seeing in our culture, why it exists, and what is our response. Look at verse 1. So let's start off in the beginning. What is Moses talking about? So in the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God. What is, what is Moses saying at the very opening of this book and the opening of the Bible? And what beginning is he talking about? Well, is he talking about the beginning of God? So at the moment God comes into existence, God then begins to create. No, that is not what Moses is talking about. For God to be God, for God to be who he is, well, he has to be eternal. That there's never been a beginning or an end to God. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But the beginning that, that Moses is talking about, that he is documenting for us, in these opening verses, what we have is an, is an overview snapshot of the entire universe and how that God created it all. So basically, we start out with a summary statement at the very beginning, and then in the six days of creation, we're going to unpack that day after day after day as far as what God did. But at the very beginning, we have God acting, moving, making a choice to create this incredible universe that we live in. This is the beginning of his work. Moses says this is the overview. God created it all. In the beginning, God stepped into time and space. God didn't start existing at that moment. God had existed in eternity past, but in that moment, God made a conscious choice to create to do something incredible and amazing and beautiful. And get this, God did this without our input. This is important because humanity thinks that we are the center of all things. This comes to that God complex that, that we all wrestle with. It's not anything new. It started in the garden in the fall. This God complex that, that we want to be in control, we want to call the shots, we think that we control outcomes. We think that, that the universe, the world, our country is all in our hands to do as we please. But the reality is when we go back to the beginning, God spoke, God made a choice, and it had, it had no input from you or anyone else. The other thing we have to realize is that if the creation has a beginning, well, it has a middle and it has an ending. Just like your life, it has a, a beginning, a middle, and an end. We spent 32 weeks in the book of Revelation looking at how God is going to bring about that end. The fact of the matter is, the Bible is very clear. All that we know is the, is the cosmos, God is going to do away with that one day. And listen, God created it. God chose, stepped into that moment to speak. He owns the rights to it. He can do with it as he pleases. And humanity, even though they are his prized possession, even though they bear the image of God, you have no say in when it begun, and you have no say in when it ends. That's all in the heart of God, in his choices, in his providence, in his sovereignty. So in the beginning, what beginning? The beginning of God to move. The beginning of God to create. The beginning of God to do this without consulting us at all. Notice what else. In the beginning, we have God. Elohim. Elohim. In the beginning, we've got God. We don't have humanity. 
We, we, we don't have a Congress. We don't have a president. We don't have a king. We don't have anything. We have God. We have the Godhead Trinity. And the only thing that I can imagine in my mind's eye is that the only thing that existed in eternity past was this, was this emptiness other than the kingdom of God where God dwells. You have God the Father. You have God the Son. You have God the Holy Spirit. At some point, they chose to create the angels. And you have the Godhead Trinity existing in eternity past. I get this question sometimes from kids. And it goes like this. Well, if, if God created everything, then who created God? That's a good question, isn't it? I love it when kids ask questions like that. Because I'm going to look at them and go, wow, that's a profound question. So who did create God? And then I'll answer it this way. Well, whoever created God, that would make them God. And then we end up to the same question. Well, who created that God? And then who created that? So we ended up in this, this endless cycle of who created who. The fact of the matter is, as hard as it is in our human understanding, because we live by a watch and we live by a calendar, things have beginnings, middles, and ends. The fact is, God has no beginning and he has no end. He is eternal. There's never been a time that he didn't exist. There's never been a time where he wasn't in control. There's never been a time where something else was calling the shots. God is supremely and majestically in control and in power, and he is a self-existent one. He doesn't have a beginning, and he doesn't have an end. And so at the very beginning of this text, we have God. There is no way to, a or to arrive at a created order without a creator. So with all this stuff I've been having going on my left eye this week, it has been so irritating. It's amazing how something so small can be so irritating. It was really nothing. I just had to let it run its course. It still is. But I was thinking as I was reading this text the other day, just the, the incredible beauty of just the eye itself. Have you ever thought about this? How that you can be looking at your phone app right now or your Bible and your eyes immediately focus on that text. And you can look up at me and your eyes immediately focus. You don't even have to think about it. In literally microseconds, your eyes are adjusting to color and light and distance and all that is happening without you even, well, thinking about it. That the eye that you have is such an amazing, amazing, beautiful creation of God that, that God gave us the ability to see his creation. And you can't have something as beautiful as the eye, as intricate as the eye, without having a God who created it. You see, this has been a debate for years and years and years. How do we arrive at such beauty and majesty by accident? That infant that you hold in your arms. You see, I think, I think we've, we've gotten so used to God and gotten so used to our lives that we, we're not in awe anymore. To hold an infant in your arms and you look down at that, at that baby and you, you see your eyes and toes and that little boy, that little girl, a brand new creation knitted together in its mother's womb. How could you, how could you arrive there by accident? It's because in the beginning, God, in the beginning, the majestic, powerful, beautiful God who created the universe, he knows you by name. He knew you in your mother's womb, and he needed you together there for a purpose. In the beginning, God, in the beginning of his creative work, his creative power, it was God at work. I was thinking about just the, the pure, sheer arrogance of humanity now. The sheer arrogance that we think we've got it all figured out. We've got all this knowledge and we've got all this technology. And you've heard about AI, right? Artificial intelligence. Well, that's the new thing. 
and how that's going to transform everything and how that this thing is going to become to the place where it could be your doctor. The medicine, the world of medicine is already being influenced by artificial intelligence. Now, I don't want to go all the way down because I remember watching the Terminator movies. I know what that's all about. I'm not going to chase that rabbit this morning. But nonetheless, humanity has come to such a peak of arrogance that we believe ourselves to be gods. The Internet itself, I was thinking about the Internet, and I thought, well, how, how much knowledge is there, right? So if you could take the entire Internet, and I don't know if this is true, so Joy, you're an IT guy. If, you, if I get this wrong, forgive me, brother. This data may be a little old. But nonetheless, I read where if you could take the entire Internet, all of the videos, all of the YouTube, all of the documents, all of the social media, all of the posts, and you condensed that down and you downloaded it, that would be in a massive amount of knowledge, would it not? A massive amount of data. And so humanity thinks that it's so smart and that it's got it all figured out. How much space, if we could download that into some terabyte drives, how much room would that take up? You might be surprised. So the best that humanity's got in knowledge and understanding would be the Internet, right? You download it, it would be you download it into about 80,000 some terabyte drives. How much space would those drives take up? About, I'm sorry, 80,000 is the square feet of space it would take up. 80,000 square feet is how much space you would need to stack these hard drives up if you download the entire internet. It sounds like a lot of space. Until you think that the place you buy groceries at Walmart is 180,000 square feet. Now think about that. All that we know and all that we've put on the internet, all of human knowledge has been downloaded to this place and you can put it in a space smaller than the place you buy groceries in. So it could be that humanity doesn't know it all. And I think Moses writing in the first opening verses says that we need to humble ourselves before this God. So in the beginning, God created. Notice that. He created. So there's this, I don't know if there's an expanse of emptiness. I I don't know if God creates the expanse and then fills it. I don't know because the Bible doesn't tell us. But God steps into this space and he begins to speak. He is the one, the only one, who can create something out of nothing. You see, I love building things, but everything that I build is dependent upon other things, other materials to put them together. But God is the only one who can speak something into existence that wasn't there before. So imagine no molecules, no protons, electrons, neutrons, no, no DNA, no anything. God, by his own sovereign will, because of his love and his mercy and his grace and his sheer desire, he simply speaks and the universe unfolds. Trillions of stars, billions of galaxies, all placed exactly where he wants them. A universe that is so expansive that we didn't even know how big it was for most of human existence. Most of human existence, we had no idea how big the universe was. We thought that our little solar system was the center of the universe, and we thought that, that everything in our, our little solar system was anything, everything that there was. And then we begin to build telescopes. And we begin to look further and further out into the expanse. And no matter how far we've looked, we found out that it's much bigger than we ever thought. And what should happen in that moment, what should happen 
is the one looking through that telescope, the one, the one who downloads those images, we should all sit back in their chair and go, oh my goodness, what a mighty God we serve. But instead, we deny that he even exists. Turn with me to Psalm 33. We need, we need the poet's help here. The poet can help us with this. Psalm 33, one of my favorite, most favorite psalms. And the reason is, is, the, is the context in which this psalm was written, but the, the power that is within these verses. Psalm 33, let's pick it up in verse 6. The psalmist says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. So that word breath is the Hebrew word ruah. I'm going to show it to you again here in just a minute. But, but the psalmist says that, and by the way, the psalmist has no idea how big the universe is at this point he's writing. He, he looks up into the night sky and he sees the stars. He looks up into the night sky and he sees the moon and he sees all these things. He, he looks in his garden and he sees plants. He looks, he looks uh, at the ocean and he sees the waves coming and going. He looks at all this and he says that God spoke. We have nothing in our context that even comes close to that kind of power. That God spoke, and simply by the power of his word, these stars and planets and galaxies are strung forth in this expanse. God, by his choice and God, by his power, brought the universe into existence. He is the unmade maker who creates everything out of nothing. Did you get that? He's the one that is not contingent upon anything else. He is the God of the universe who was never made who will never end, who has no beginning, and it's only that God who has this kind of power and this kind of majesty to simply speak, and the planets are hung in place. I don't know about you, but we should be in awe of that. We should be in awe of that. God who creates out of nothing, and he speaks all things into existence, the the Greek gods and the Roman gods of mythology, when you look at that, when you look at those gods, they were not a lot different than humans. They were, well, they were capricious, they were angry, they, they had powers, yeah, that set them apart from humanity. But at the end of the day, they were, well, they were unpredictable. So they were, they were almost like advanced humans that had some powers, almost like superheroes, but they really, really not anywhere compared to the God of Scriptures. So when you begin to compare the God of Scriptures, Elohim, compared to mythology, well, there is no comparison at all. Amen. And here we have God simply speaking. Notice what else the psalmist says. Verse 7, he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in the storehouses. Verse 8, what should be the natural response of this truth? What should be the response of humanity to such an incredible truth? Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. So on the one hand, we have this majestic, powerful, beautiful God. All he has to do is speak and he creates the universe. But at the same time, this incredible, majestic, powerful God knows you personally. He knows what's on your mind this morning. He knows what's in your heart. He knows the pain that you're going through. 
He knows the brokenness that you've experienced. He knows, he knows the deep hurt that maybe nobody else knows. So on the one hand, we have a God who speaks and hangs stars in their place. But on the other hand, we have a God who is personal and focused on you. How do I know that? Because look what happens next. Go back to Genesis 1. Go back to Genesis 1. This next verse begins to tell us what God is going to do in this created space, this, this creation that he's spoken to existence. Look at this, verse 2, it says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, down through the years, there have been all kinds of uh, things said about verses 1 and 2. So back in the day when um, evolution the evolutionary theory, Darwinism, was beginning to take a lot of root and, and get a lot of momentum back in the 50s and 60s. Uh, there was these ideas coming forth, forth towards the church and leaders in the church that, that the earth is billions and billions of years old. And the scientists would, would come forward and they would have evidence. They would have things that they have dug. They have had soil samples and stone samples. And they would say, look, this proves that the earth is billions of years old. So theologians sat back in the chair and go, wait a minute. Okay, that, that seems to be pretty credible. So if the, if the earth is billions and billions of years old and, and is an evolutionary process, then, then how do we reconcile that with Scripture? So one of the approaches they took was is that between verses 1 and verses 2, there are millions and billions of years of just the earth being here. And that's where you have the dinosaurs and the, all those ages of beings of years. So they say, well, before God moved and acted, the earth was already here in existence. And that's where we get the beings of years. There's only one problem with that. Well, a lot of problems, but one big problem. Uh, it doesn't say that in the text here or anywhere else. So this idea that I have to acquiesce the Bible, the creator by whom gave us his words, and God wanted us to know in the very first two verses that he is God and that in the beginning he created. He wants us to know that. And he chose to put that at the very beginning of his letter to us. And we think we need to reconcile that with what humanity says is right. I think we need to be very careful with that. God created. But not only did he create... He's now going to step into the void called earth, this, this planet that he's created, this planet that he's spoken into existence, and now he is going to bring some form and function to what's going to happen on this planet. And you know why he does it? You're going to be blown away by this. I'm blown away by it. So what we're going to see in the six days of creation, what we're going to see is God bringing form and function to this planet. Why is he doing it? Why do we have the six days of creation? Because God wants you to know that he's doing all of this on your behalf. I mean, think about it. We're talking about going to Mars. There's been debate about going to Mars for years. But the technology is beginning to catch up where maybe in our lifetime, and I'm a big space nut. I love all things space. Imagine that in our lifetime, there could be some human beings put on a rocket and go and step foot on the planet Mars. But you know why it's so difficult for that? Not only is the journey difficult, it's very dangerous. Space is not habitable for human beings. Mars is not habitable for human beings. It's a dangerous place. You can very easily die. It's just not an environment that human beings are cut out for. And there's a reason for that because it's this planet, notice this, that now the Spirit of God is hovering over this one planet planet and all of the trillions and trillions of planets we have one that has God's attention and it's this planet that he is going to form 
It's this planet that he's going to arrange. It's this planet that he's going to give function to. Why is he doing it? So that his prized creation, humanity, can thrive upon this planet. He is doing all of this to prepare for you. That in eternity past, your name was on his mind. In eternity past, because he is God and he knows all things, he knew what you'd be facing on this very day. Listen, folks, God has not wound the universe up and walked away. He is intimately connected to everything that is going on in his universe, especially your life. So it's both true at the same time that God holds the universe in the palm of his hand. He is in control of it, but he is aware of your hurt and your pain this morning. Amen. The God who spoke it all into existence, who is going to bring form and function into this planet, is doing that because he had you on his mind. It says that his power, notice this, the Spirit of God. You see that word spirit is the same Hebrew word that we saw in Psalm 33, the Ruah. Now, some see the Trinity right here. We, some see the Trinity. Matter of fact, in your, in your translation, you may have the, the word Spirit capitalized there. That is referring to the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the part of the Godhead Trinity involved in the creative act at this moment. And it says that, that the presence of God, the power of God was circling over this planet and in the days that's going to happen, in the events that happen next, God brings, brings order. He brings function. He brings structure. And what we're going to see in the six days of creation is he is making this planet inhabitable for his prized creation, you and I. But in doing so, he's going to set forth some principles. You see, by God being the creator... By God being the one who calls it into existence, he owns it all, and therefore he can set it up the way he wants to. God gets to define what marriage is, not humanity. God gets to define what gender is, not humanity. Because he is the creator over all things, he gets to set it up the way he wants to. And the further we depart from that structure, the more chaos we will see. So he is... The creator who spoke it all into existence. He brings form and function over the face of the waters through the presence of his power. This framework that God establishes, this design that he establishes, that is his will and his right as owner and creator. You don't have to like it. You don't have to agree with it. But the more you run from it, the more chaotic your life will be. So as we think about this form and function that God has made, turn over to Romans chapter 1. We're going to be going to Romans 1 several times in the coming weeks, but just to, just to highlight a little of what Paul is saying here, Paul gives us a picture, an illustration, uh, kind of birthed in or kind of rooted in this downward spiral of humanity. And what Paul is going to do here in Romans 1, 18 and following, he's going to say that, that God's wrath, his anger towards humanity is absolutely justified. Absolutely justified. That as a hum human being, as, a, as human beings, we have not only been born into sin, but we have chose to reject him. 
We have chose to reject God's revelation in his creation that every time you look at a, a flower, when you look at an infant, when you, when you see a thunderstorm, a lightning storm, you, know, you shudder when you hear that big boom and that big clap of thunder, right? But also in that moment, as a follower of Christ, I just have to have all for God, right? When I go hiking and I come over the precipice of a mountain and I see a valley stretched out before me, the reason I do it is to be reminded of how small I am and how big God is. But Paul in Romans chapter 1 says, listen, as people continue to reject God and disobey him, there are some road markers you can look for as they go down this path. Listen to what he says. Let's pick it up in verse, uh, verse 21. For although they knew God, in other words, Paul makes a, makes a good strong argument here that, that God has revealed himself in his creation, that when you look at it, you have to come to the conclusion that this just, this just isn't a cosmic accident. So we have an opportunity to respond to that. But here's what happens. He said, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. That'd be like having his words inscribed on buildings, but not making any difference in our life. You see, although they maybe acknowledge him, but they don't honor him. They don't live for him. They don't, they don't uh, submit themselves to him. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But here it is. They became futile. That means weak in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. I want you to look closely at verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. How many times in any given week do you have an expert on your social media feed or on the news telling you what you know to be a lie, but yet telling you that it's true? With just basic human understanding of how the world operates, you hear this and you go, there's no way. That's, that's there's no way. You're, you're simply lying. But yet this person has two PhDs in front of their name and maybe they're at a prestigious medical school and teaching teach an incredible college and, and, and they have all the attributes. But yet the very thing they're saying denies the created order and you know it to be a lie. You see, they're proclaiming themselves to be wise. They're claiming to know it all. Yet, they are fools. When we go down the path of narcissism and arrogance and pride, this is where it leads. You can literally live a lie and live as though it's true. He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Look at verse 23. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. So what we just read in Genesis 1, this God who is creator, this God who is to be feared and respected, this God who is sovereignly in control of the universe and intimately connected to who you are as an individual, this God, we're going to exchange that. We're going we're to drop that. We're going we're to move away from that. And now what we're going to do is we're going to focus on the creation specifically, and this is the conclusion that I've come to is that not only are we denying God, but we want to be gods ourselves. We want to be worshiped. We, we want to be the person who the world adores. We want to be the one that gets the hand claps. We want to be the one that has the 15 million views on our latest video. And at the root of this is pride, arrogance, and quite frankly, folks, a deep, deep narcissism 
something that says, look at me, look at me, look at me. I am the greatest thing in your life. I have the answers. I know what is real and what is true. We are living in a world of abject narcissism. And Paul said that if we continue down this path, we will give up and ignore what God has done. And instead, we'll look to the creation. We'll look to ourselves. Paul says that this is the trajectory of humanity when they reject what we see in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So in closing, let's think about just a few things. I go back to those original questions. We're going to wrestle with these questions. They're, they're philosophical in some respect. They're theological. We're going to wrestle with them in the weeks ahead. So who am I? Who are you? Well, well there's two potential answers here. Actually, there's more than that, but there's two we're going to look at. One, you are just a cosmic accident. <clears throat> there is no force guiding anything. There is no God he is, if there is a God, he's not in control. He's unknowable. So basically, you are an accident. Then if we go back in evolutionary thought enough, we will find that this clump of cells over millions and billions of years turned into a, a lizard, which then turned into a, a frog, which then turned into a cat, which then turned into a, I'm, I'm messing this all up, but you understand where I'm going. We start with a clump of cells, and we end up with a human being. And all of that over billions of years was simply accidents that happened and happened at the right time with the right order, and out comes you. Well, our society has bought that because they've been told that for many, many years, and now we've even walked away from all of that to say that you are the master of your fate. You are in control. Therefore, your life has a beginning, your life has an end, and everything in between, well, that should be just lived for you. What is my purpose? These two questions are connected. For if I'm just a cosmic accident, then I really have no purpose. And folks, this is where a lot of our young people are living today. They, they, can't, they cannot come to this place of what they're supposed to do in life. I, listen, I, I wrestled with that as well when I was a young person. But I think our 20-somethings and our and our young adults are wrestling with this more than any other generation, is they just simply don't know what to do. They, they, don't, they don't know how they want to spend the rest of their life. And so they're, they're, they're taking all kinds of substances to forget the fact that they don't know who they are and they don't know what their purpose is. So I'm just going to smoke a joint so that I can forget it long enough. And maybe if I can just stay high perpetually, I won't ever have to think about any of these things because when I do, I get depressed. You see, who you are and your purpose, they're, they're connected. Is your purpose to simply live and then, and then get a degree and then get married, have a family, and then die, and that's it? Is that all there is? Or is there more? Well, how you answer, how you answer the beginnings is how you answer these two questions. If there is no creator... If there is no creator, then you're an accident. If you're an accident, you have no purpose other than just to live and party and do all you want to do in this life. And you don't have to worry about anything after this, right? But what if you're wrong? What if you're wrong? 
What if the God of the Bible is the one who's in control? And what if he created you for a purpose, knitted you together in your mother's womb for a unique purpose and that he intimately loves you and that he, he desperately wants you to turn your eyes towards him? That <clears throat> He has an incredible, amazing life for you to live, a path for you to walk. And the longer you listen to the world, the more you ignore him and miss your purpose, and then you're filled with regrets. What if, what if returning to the God of the, the creation, the one who spoke it into existence, what if returning to him is where you find true peace and meaning to life? Maybe that's today. Maybe that's this moment right now. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Bay.